Hi, and welcome to Popaholics, the show where dad and daughter normally dish on pop culture over a drink. I'm Steve Hall. Kate Hall is not with us because she did not have anything she wanted to discuss this week. Ordinarily, I would have just let the taping go, but there are several things I wanted to talk about while they're still fresh in my mind, and I know that next week I'm not available. So, you're stuck with me today. First, I want to talk about a book. I went to the library, and and let me just say uh, thank God for whoever invented library apps like Libby that supplied us with fresh reading material during the pandemic. Um, That was a godsend. But for me, there's no substitute like actually being able to go to the library, walking around, pulling books off the shelf at random, looking at them, you know, going to look for a favorite author, and you find out that you've read all the books that are in stock, or um, you don't see anything by them, but hey, down here a few books down, something else that looks interesting, and you discover a great read. That's one of my favorite things about going to the library. Love libraries. So I was in the library this past Saturday, wandering around, and I saw the graphic novel section, and I thought, well, I'll just go over there and see if I can find something that's funny, or maybe some superhero compilation like Spider-Man. And what I found was a great graphic novel, My Friend Dahmer, by John Durf Backdorf. Of course, Jeffrey Dahmer was an American serial killer and serial offender who committed the murder and dismemberment of 17 men and boys between 1978 and 1991. Many of his later murders involved necrophilia, cannibalism, and the permanent preservation of body parts. Typically, all are part of the skeleton. Dahmer was beaten to death. Uh, in prison in 1994. Now, that's how we know Jeffrey Dahmer. For John Durf Backdorf, Dahmer was a high school friend uh, in Ohio with whom he shared classrooms, hallways, and car rides. So this is a coming, an unusual coming-of-age uh, graphic novel that talks about the fact that he knew Jeffrey Dahmer. And one of the things I liked about this book, um, you, he could have just drawn from his own memories. But he did research. He interviewed um, people like Dahmer's parents. He read books on Dahmer, the police reports. He uh, watched everything, every interview that Dahmer had given, trying to understand him. In fact, the back of the book even contains a breakdown by scene of where that information came from, the source. So very well-researched, well-reported memoir. Now, Durf doesn't apologize for anything that Dahmer did after high school, but he, but the, this is a surprisingly sympathetic portrait of a disturbed young man really struggling with these awful urges that were coming from his psyche. Um, he was a shy kid, a teenage alcoholic, and a, a goofball who never quite fit in with his classmates. And one of the things about this book is that Durf doesn't excuse he and his classmates for the way that they treated Dahmer, which Dahmer developed a pretty good, very funny, cerebral palsy imitation and could also mimic going into an epileptic fit. I know it sounds awful, but this was back in the 70s. Um, High humor, apparently. Um, And so these kids would call on Dahmer to do that whenever they needed a laugh, and they would mimic uh, him talking in that fashion. But then they never really made him part of their circle. And there's a telling story where 
they paid him $35, I think it was, to go to the Summit County Mall and just act weird all day. And by the end of the day, when they're getting ready to leave, they're all making plans to meet up later. And Dahmer, who's walking behind them, is just not included at all. The other thing that comes out of this book is that you wonder why no adults noticed what was going on uh, with Dahmer, that he was obviously struggling. His parents were going um, through uh, bitter fights on their way to a divorce. So they were kind of wrapped in their own deal. But then Dahmer was drinking heavily to try to uh, make himself numb so he wouldn't be feeling these urges. And um, he was drinking at school. There's The turf tells one story about um, talking to him in the hallway, and it was like 8.30 in the morning, and he was smelled like uh, alcohol, obviously drunk. So you kind of wonder why no teacher or um, authority figure recognized, hey, this kid's having some issues, and we need to get him help. This is a great book. It was a national bestseller, uh, numerous awards. It was named a best of 2012 by Time, The Village Voice, AV Club, Boing Boing, Publishers Weekly, MTV Geek, etc. Now, it was also made into a 2017 movie with Ross Lynch as Dahmer and Alex Wolf as Durf. And I have not seen that movie, but um, there is a great clip of scenes from that movie set to the talking head Psycho Killer that you can find on YouTube. Very effective. So, um, again, that is My Friend Dahmer. Um, great book. The visual style, if you're familiar with R. Crumb, it kind of reminded me of a, a more sophisticated version of R. Crumb's drawings, but very well done. I'd like to talk about a streaming offering now, Wolf Like Me, which is available on Peacock. The stars Ilsa Fisher and Josh Gad. Now, Ilsa Fisher, you may remember her as the sex crest, sex crazy younger sister in Wedding Crashers, but she has done a ton of stuff since then. Confessions of a Shopaholic, The Great Gatsby, Now You See Me, Keeping Up with the Joneses. Um, she's also voiced characters in animated films, including Horton Hears a Who, Rango, and Rise of the Guardians in 2012. And she was also on the fourth and fifth seasons of Arrested Development. She's married to Sasha Baron Cohen. She's Mrs. Barat. She's authored two young adult novels and the Marge in Charge book series. So a busy woman. Meanwhile, Josh Gad, um, I think, made his initial splash on Broadway in the Book of Mormon. He's an American actor and singer, best known for voicing Olaf the Snowman in Disney's Frozen franchise. Um, he was also Beauty and the Beast as LeFou, Ghostbusters, Afterlife as Muncher, The Wedding Ringer, Ice Age, Continental Drift, Pickles, Pixels, etc. So Wolf Like Me is a drama about entering a relationship that has some baggage. Ilsa's Mary is complicated. Dogs and cats act weird around her. And she has a habit of forgetting what time it is, then realizing at the last minute that it's later than she thinks, jumping up and running away without any kind of explanation whatsoever. Josh is Gary. He's a widow, sleepwalking, sleepwalking through life, uh, very overprotective of his daughter. And this is set in Adelaide, Australia, um, which incidentally is where um, Fisher lives in uh, Australia, I believe. And it. Australia does come to be part of the story. But, of course, why does Ilsa jump up and run away? Because, you know, she has to get home before the full moon comes up because she's a werewolf. Now, 
like I said, this is a drama about entering a relationship with baggage. Um, and it, it's very well done from that standpoint. Uh, both Josh and Ilsa are very appealing in the in these roles. It doesn't add anything to the werewolf canon. Werewolves are my favorite movie monster. Some people would think zombies, but actually it's werewolves. Ever since I saw The Wolfman, uh, my favorite werewolf movie is American Werewolf in London because of the mix of horror and humor. But that's beside the point. But like I said, this one um, won't. If you're a werewolf fan, won't anything new to the canon, but it's still a very enjoyable show. So that's Wolf Like Me on Peacock. Finally, I want to talk about another book. This one I did find out through the, I did discover through the Libby app. Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock by Stephen Hayden. And Hayden is a Gen Xer who, as a kid, growing up in Wisconsin, I think it was, became obsessed with classic rock to the point that he became a music critic. So this is a great book because he's examining the state of classic rock as the people who have created it begin to die off. He looks at its past and future, the impact it's had, and what its loss might mean to an industry, a culture, and a way of life. This is the kind of book where he he looks at phenomena like dad rock. He looks at the phenomena of bands that go on when most of the original members are no longer with that band. He ponders the popularity of REO Speedwagon uh, in the context of his dwarf's mom, who liked that band. And then chapters where he wrestles with Dylan, uh, what Dylan means. Um, it's just a, a very fascinating, thoughtful, irreverent, funny book. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite passages was he was talking about the uh, about rock documentaries, and he mentions The Last Waltz by... Martin Scorsese, which was, of course, the band's farewell concert. And he talks about how in the interviews for that documentary, the members of the band come across as like classic rock's version of the Seven Dwarfs. So very irreverent stuff. One of the things he asks is, you know, as these people die off, you know, he, he points out that Keith Richards has survived all kinds of drug stuff, Anita Pallenberg, Lares falling out of a tree on his head, but of course, eventually he's going to die. And he mentioned that about several other folks, given their ages. And so then he wonders what happens. Um, and so I've been thinking about that. I sort of believe it's going to be like other genres where the people have passed on. You know, blues, Howling Wolf, Mighty Waters. A lot of the blues greats are no longer with us, but that music still survives. Um, obviously it's not as big as it once was, but still has people out there making the blues, being influenced by those records. You look back at swing music, um, jump blues. I mean, all kinds of genres where the people have passed on, but that their records, their music is still around and people are still influenced by them. And I sort of feel like that's what's going to happen with classic rock. Um, as everybody dies, that format may go away, uh, radio format go away, but that music's still going to be around. And, you know, one of the things that makes me think that is the fact, I wish Kate was on the show because she's a classic rock fan in addition to, she likes pop, she likes dance, she, she likes all kinds of music, but she does love her queen, um, you know, other classic rock bands. And so that gives me hope that this music will survive and 
be around. And I have to say, as somebody who has been a big classic rock fan uh, all my life, I learned stuff from this book that I did not know. For example, um, he talks about the Springsteen tour that I went to back in the uh, late 70s that made me a lifelong Springsteen fan. And just what a perfectionist Springsteen was. So like all of the monologues, tall tales that he would tell, which appeared to be spontaneous, were of course rehearsed to within an inch of their life. And then in, during the when they were ha- having the rehearsal in the venue, when nobody was there, Springsteen would go out in the audience, stand different places to make sure he could hear everything. You could hear all the music. You could hear somebody talking on stage. It's just pretty phenomenal what, what a perfectionist um, he is and was. I would highly recommend this book to anybody who who likes classic rock. And, of course, there's also, as, he, as Haydn talks about classic rock he he also works in stuff about growing up his his marriage um just a lot of uh, great stuff that you can relate to because of the way that those songs inform parts of his life and the way they inform parts of our life that is twilight of the gods a journey to the end of classic rock by stephen hayden uh, which was incidentally a national bestseller named one of rolling stone's best music books of 2018 the New York Times uh, book review called it new and noteworthy when it came out. So finally, I just want to mention that March 6th was the Day of the Dude, the most sacred day uh, in Dudaism. Uh, Dudaism is, of course, the religion inspired by uh, the Coen Brothers movie, The Big Lebowski, with Jeff Bridges as Jeffrey the Dude Lebowski. I went back and watched it. I am an ordained priest in the in Dudaism, uh, which was a very rigorous training. I had to send away $25 for a certificate. I went back and watched the movie, and there's a scene where uh, Walter, who is played by John Goodman, uh, gets very angry at another bowler, a long guy with long hair, skinny guy with long hair, because he's, according to Walter, he supposedly stepped over the line when he released his uh, role. Um, and as watching it this time, I realized, wait a minute, that's Jimmy Dale Gilmore, the alt country artist. So when I went on online to confirm that, then I discovered that uh, two other uh, musicians have cameos in that movie that I'd never noticed before. Um, Flea, uh, the bassist for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, is one of the uh, German nihilists uh, who drive the plot. And then there's a scene where the nihilists are sitting in a diner, the three men, and then a girlfriend of one of them. And she's played by uh, Amy Mann, who uh, was with the band Till Tuesday and has had a very, uh, Voices Carry, you might remember that song, has had a very thriving uh, singer-songwriter career since then. Uh, it's funny the things you notice even when you've seen a movie re- repeated times. So that's all for this abbreviated version of Papaholics. You can find links to more information about the things that I've talked about. Uh, in our posts and our newsletter and so go out and enjoy pop culture